Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Kit. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you with us, uh, especially if you were not here last week. We missed a lot of you guys. We were here uh, last Sunday, but I know a lot of you guys were not. You're still traveling or classes hadn't started back yet or whatever it was. Uh, if you did miss last Sunday, uh, let me encourage you, if you haven't already, to go back, grab the podcast online uh, just to get a feel for where we were coming from uh, last Sunday. Uh, we kicked off a new series uh, called Formation, which is the art and science of how we change. And I don't really have time today to give you the full spiel, but basically what we said last Sunday was that all of us on some level are interested in how we change, how we grow and mature over time to become different and ideally better types of people. All of us are interested in the answer to that question especially this time of year, right? So now we are officially five days in to whatever New Year's resolutions you chose to make or not make, right? And I won't make you raise your hands to tell me whether you're still hanging in there because that would be embarrassing. But all of us, especially this time of year, we want to know how do we change as human beings? How do we grow and mature? And specifically for followers of Jesus in the room, how do we grow to become more and more like Jesus? That is a question that an awful lot of us want the answer And so last Sunday, we attempted to answer that. Uh, And basically, our answer was that one of the most important ways that we change, one of the central ways that we change over time, is through our habits, the things that we do over and over again in our lives. Those things have the tremendous ability to shape us over time as human beings. They have a huge impact on the types of people that we eventually become, our habits do. And so we said last week that in light of that, in light of our habits having that kind of impact on us, we want to take the beginning of each new year as a church family and focus on one particular habit that has the ability over time to make us more and more like Jesus. And this year, the habit that we are focusing on as a church family is reading and studying the Bible together. We believe that the Holy Spirit can work through the scriptures to form us into certain types of people over the long haul. So as a way to help us all develop that habit, we put out a year-long Bible reading plan. If you haven't had the chance to grab one yet, they're in the lobby on your way out. You can grab one of those. You can also go online, uh, find a PDF version of it. But basically, we put together this year-long Bible reading plan as a way to help us put into practice together the habit of reading and studying the Bible. But then to go along with that over the next five weeks or so, we're going to be teaching from stage about the Bible. We want to actually attempt to wrap our minds around what this is exactly. And so today, specifically, I want us to answer that question. What is the Bible? Exactly. 
I, I would argue that a lot of our confusion and issues and hang-ups with the Bible come from us not quite understanding what it is exactly. That's what I've learned over the years about people. Now, maybe that sounds like too basic of a place to start. Like maybe some of us are going, okay, I'm confused about a lot of things with the Bible, but I think I understand what it is. But what we've learned over the years, over the past eight years or so, as I've been a pastor, is that maybe we shouldn't assume that we all fully understand what this is. In fact, at many times in my life, I have realized that I've misunderstood what this thing is. And so Today, I want us to try to talk about what is the Bible exactly. If we understand what the Bible is, I think we've got a good shot at understanding a lot of the stuff in it. But if we misunderstand what this is in the first place, we don't stand much of a chance, right? So today, I want us to try to clear some of that up. I want us to talk about what the Bible is exactly. So let's do it this way. Let's start off real briefly by just eliminating a couple of things that the Bible is not. Sometimes it helps to rid ourselves of maybe some wrong thinking or incorrect thinking or at least partially incorrect thinking about something before we talk about what it is. So real quickly, two things that the Bible is not, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning talking about what the Bible is. Is. First, the Bible is not an instruction manual. The Bible is not an instruction manual. Some people see this book as primarily a book full of instructions and rules about what to do and what not to do. Such that if we were to take the things that it says to do and do those things and not do the things it says not to do, then life will go better for us than it would otherwise. And that's not all wrong. Hear me out on that. That's not completely incorrect. After all, there are plenty of instructions and rules in this book, right? Old Testament and New, there are instructions about how we should and should not go about life. But I would strongly suggest that you not read the entire Bible as if that's what it is. One reason I say that is because the majority of the Bible isn't made up of instructions or rules at all. For instance, we're going to talk more about this here in a bit, but a lot of the Bible, almost half, is actually narrative. In other words, almost half of the Bible isn't primarily trying to tell you what to do or what not to do. It's just trying to describe for you what happened once upon a time. And if you try to turn all of those stories, those narratives, into instructions or moral lessons about how to live, you will end up doing some very bizarre stuff to the Bible. As an example, uh, I knew a pastor uh, back when I was living in South Carolina who once upon a time uh, gave me a series of lectures that he did called 50 Leadership Lessons from the Life of Moses. This is a thing that pastors do apparently, is after you talk to them, they go, hey, in case you didn't hear me talk enough, here's some more tapes of me talking. Um, And so he gives me this series of lectures that he did called 50 Leadership Lessons from the Life of Moses. He had essentially taken every single story out of the life of Moses, mainly from the book of Exodus, And for each one, he had pulled out a short, sort of punchy leadership one-liner or maxim from the story. So just out of curiosity, I wanted to hear what leadership lesson he pulled out of the story where Moses lashes out in anger and kills an Egyptian. 
That was just interesting to me, right? I want to know what's the lesson from that particular story, especially as it relates to leadership. Do you guys want to know what it was? I'm going to tell you whether you want to know or not. Uh, The leadership lesson from that story where Moses kills an Egyptian is eliminate small problems before they become big problems. And so the next time I saw this guy that did the lectures, I was like, uh, excuse me, I am much younger than you, and I don't want to assume that I know anything. But just to be clear, when you said that I should eliminate small problems before they become big problems, what you meant was if I'm leading an organization and a person in that organization is difficult, you're saying that I should murder them? I never got a straight answer from him about that, which honestly was a little more troubling, right? But do you see what he did there? What he did was that he took a story that was just trying to describe something that happened once upon a time in the life of Moses, and what he did was he tried to pull out a moral instruction or a rule or a guideline or a principle from it. He tried to read the entire Bible like it was an instruction manual. And I would argue that if you try to read the Bible that way, if that's the way you approach the entirety of the Bible, even though hopefully you won't get quite that far with it, you will end up doing some equally misrepresentative things with the Bible. Because the Bible in its entirety was not intended to be read like that. The Bible is not an instruction manual. Second, the Bible is not an inspirational quote book. The Bible is not an inspirational quote book. I might step on a couple toes here. The other popular approach to the Bible that I have seen in people's lives is that they will approach the Bible as if it is simply a collection of comforting and inspiring quotes to make us feel good. And maybe like cross stitch on some attire of some sort or tattoo on your foot or whatever it is that Christians do nowadays, right? People will approach the Bible as if it is simply a collection, an assortment of inspiring quotes to help us out, to make us feel good as a result of reading them. People that read the Bible like this tend to gravitate towards passages like Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That just feels good to read, right? They gravitate towards passages in the New Testament, like Ephesians 3.20. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Or everybody's favorite, thanks to our boy Tim Tebow, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You go win that championship, Tebow, right? Now, those are inspiring quotes from the Bible, no doubt about it. And parts of the Bible are indeed meant to be inspiring and encouraging and comforting to us. Absolutely. But again, this becomes a problematic way to read the entire Bible. Because as inspiring as some passages are in the Bible, they're not actually all directly intended for us today. 
In other words, if you read the whole Bible like this, you may end up claiming some promises that aren't actually yours to claim, at least not directly. For example, Jeremiah 29.11 is written to the nation of Israel, whom God is leading into an extended season of exile as discipline for their refusal to listen to him. So is it really okay for us to take verse 11 and just appropriate it into our lives however we think it might apply in the moment? And and if we do that, shouldn't we also directly apply the parts of Jeremiah that talk about God dealing with us severely because of our sin? Why do we appropriate verse 11 and not the rest of the book or even the rest of that chapter? When it comes to Philippians 4.13, Paul writes that line, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He writes that line from prison where he is starving on and off, likely tortured and mistreated. At times, he just wants to die rather than continue on. And out of that place, he writes the line, I know how to abound and I know how to be brought low. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, If you play football, feel free to put that line on your eye black before you go out and play the championship game. Just know that's not exactly the context that Paul had in mind when he wrote those words in Philippians. So do you see how this approach to the Bible gets just a little bit weird, right? It's not quite how we were intended to read the Bible, at least not the entire Bible. And this leads us to another problem with reading the Bible like this, which is that you actually can't read the whole Bible like that, to just find comforting and inspiring quotes. To put it bluntly, an awful lot of the Bible is not anywhere as inspiring as those two verses that we just read. A lot of it isn't all that inspiring at all. Some of it was meant to correct. Some of it was meant to rebuke. Some of it was meant to convict and expose things in us as a result. So if you go through the Bible only hoping to pluck verses of emotional encouragement out, you're likely going to have to skip an awful lot of the Bible as you do that. So the point is, I don't think either of those methods are great methods to read the entire Bible. I don't think either of them are great approaches for how we read the entire thing beginning to end. They're just a little bit too narrow. They're too selective, And they leave us in the dark about what to do with the large portions of the Bible that don't fit in that framework. So with those out of the way, what I want us to spend most of our time talking about this morning is what the Bible is. Now that we know what it's not, what is this thing that we have sitting in front of us exactly? I'll start off by giving you a long, drawn-out definition, and then we'll go back through it and kind of break it down little by little, piece by piece. So if you like writing notes, you may want to write this down. The Bible is a library of books inspired by God telling a unified story that leads us to Jesus. The Bible is a library of books inspired by God telling a unified story that leads us to Jesus. Let's take each bit of that little by little. First, the Bible is a library of books. So right off the bat, and this might be a little bit jarring to some of us in the room, the Bible actually isn't a book. 
Now, it obviously looks like a book. It's bound together like a book. But the Bible is not a singular book. It's a lot of different books all in one place, 66 of them to be exact. As a side note, this is why I personally prefer the term the scriptures to the term the Bible, partly because Jesus calls them the scriptures, but also because the word scriptures is plural, right? So to me, it's a good reminder that what we're reading is not a singular book. It's actually a library of books. It's a collection of different books. And each of these books communicate to us in slightly different ways from one another. The author of Hebrews, I think, gets at this idea when he says this, thinking specifically about the prophetic books in the Old Testament. He says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So the scriptures, and here Hebrews might just be saying specifically the prophetic books in the Old Testament, were written in a variety of different ways. They all look and sound a little bit different from one another. They're each written by a variety of people in a variety of different styles. To use a modern term, the Bible is made up of many different genres of literature. Many different genres of literature. Now, here's why that matters so much. I'm not just being pedantic here. The reason that matters is because you read different genres of literature in different ways, right? The type of literature you're reading, the type of writing that you're reading impacts how you read it and what you expect to get out of it as a result of reading it. So if you're a student in the room and you're reading through your Western Civ textbook later this week, probably you are reading it with a highlighter or a pen nearby, maybe a notebook or some flashcards or something like that in order to jot down stuff and highlight stuff and underline stuff as you go, because that's the purpose of a textbook, right? Is that you want to hone in on certain things that are important for you to remember and commit them to memory. But you probably don't sit down with a highlighter, pen, and flashcards to read through like Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Or maybe you do, but if you do, we can all agree that's like nerd level 1000, right? <laughs> but probably you don't read that type of literature that way, because it's, it's a different type of writing. It's, it's a different genre. Similarly, you probably don't sit down with like a hot cup of cocoa and a blanket and snuggle up in front of the fire at night to like casually flip through the owner's manual for your car, right? Because that's not how it was intended to be read, right? That's, that's not the purpose of the type of literature or writing that you're reading. So different types of writing get read in different ways because they're written for different purposes. Some things are written for the purpose of information. Some things are written for entertainment. Some things are written for inspiration, for instruction, so on and so forth. And to read something well, to read anything well, you need to understand what type of literature it is that you're reading and how the author intended for it to be read, what his purpose was in writing it. The Bible, in a lot of ways, is similar to that. For instance, here are the different types of literature in the Bible. These are just three big categories. We could probably break it down even further than this into like 10, 15 different types. But just big picture, here are the three different types of genres of writing in the Bible. So 44% of the Bible is narrative, like we said earlier. 
meaning its primary purpose is not to tell you what to do. Its primary purpose is to just detail for you what happened once upon a time. 44% of the Bible. So almost half is doing that. Second, right at a third of the Bible is poetry. It's poetry. And those of you that have studied any English literature at all know that poetry brings with it its own set of ideas and principles about how to read it that are very different than how you read other types of literature. And finally, just 23% of the Bible is what's called discourse, or we might say teaching, meaning it's trying to communicate ideas or concepts or instructions to us. So that's what makes up the Bible. So as you can imagine, just those three different types of literature carry with them different principles for understanding them and reading them well. We aren't meant to read the Psalms exactly the same way that we read Romans. And we aren't meant to read Romans the exact same way that we read Genesis. And if you attempt to read those books in exactly the same way, you likely will be very confused. And you end up getting some very confusing ideas about who God is and what he's like because the Bible is not a book. It's a library of books. It's a collection of a bunch of different books all in one place. So the Bible is a library of books, second, that is inspired by God. Second, the Bible is inspired by God. All of these different writings and different genres in the Bible are inspired by God himself. So even though the Bible is a collection of books, it's not just any old collection of books. Because these books ultimately all have the same person behind them. They're all inspired by God. Now I need to clarify, when I say that these books are inspired I don't just mean that the people writing the Bible were like motivated by some stuff God did and they were excited enough about it that they decided to write some of it down. That's not what I mean when I say inspired. I mean much more than that. The word inspire, even in English, has connotations of breathing into something. So when we talk about the Bible being inspired, what we're saying is that God himself breathed it into existence. We get this from places like 2 Timothy 3. We'll put this on the screen for you. All scripture is breathed out by God. There's our idea right there. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So as you can see, the Bible claims that the Bible is a creation of God himself, He spoke through human authors, sure, but it was ultimately him behind every bit of it. So when we read the scriptures, we are not just reading some random people's speculations about God. We are reading words that God himself prompted those people to write down about who he is and what he does. We are reading things that God himself intended for us to read so that we might grow in an understanding of who he is and in relationship with him. Now, here's why this part of the definition matters practically. As you sit down and you attempt to read the Bible this week, here's why this matters practically, to know that the Bible is inspired by God. If the things in here are inspired by God, then to intentionally reject the things in this book is to reject God himself. 
is to reject God himself. I know a lot of people who will try to separate out their faith in God from their relationship with the Bible. So they'll say things like, well, the Bible isn't my authority, God's my authority. Or, hey, I don't get too hung up on the stuff in that book because really my relationship is with God, not with the Bible. And, and I think I understand some of that and where it's coming from. But if the Bible was breathed out by God himself, then statements like that at a certain point don't really make any sense. That would be like if your boss at work sent you an email with a specific list of instructions of things for you to do, and then you intentionally disregarded them and wrote them off, and then the next day when your boss asked you about it, you said, well, hey, listen, you're my boss, your emails aren't my boss. They would look at you like you're crazy, because that's a thing that crazy people would say, right? Because the email is the delegation of the authority of your boss. So to reject what they say in the email and intentionally disregard it is to disregard them as your authority in the workplace. So yes, sure, God is our ultimate authority, but one of the ways that God has chosen to delegate his authority is through the scriptures to us by breathing them into existence and giving them to you and I as followers of Jesus. And because of that, the scriptures are a form of his authority over us as followers of Jesus. So the Bible is a library of books inspired by God, third thing on the list, telling a unified story. Telling a unified story. It is so important for us to get that the Bible at its core is a story. It's trying to tell for us a story. Story is God's chosen method of revealing himself to you and I. And so the scriptures at their core tell that story. Think with me about this for just a second. God could have chosen to reveal himself to humanity by just dropping a systematic theology book out of the sky. Right? Chapter one, God. Chapter two, Trinity. Chapter three, sin. Chapter four, redemption. Like we, he could have done that, right? He could have dropped a systematic theology book out of the sky. But did he do it that way? No, that's not what this is. Instead, the predominant method of communication in the Bible is that of a story, an unfolding story of God and his people. So in the Bible, God could have said to us, here's what I'm like, I'm patient. And then followed that with a very technical definition of what patience means. And there's a time or two in the Bible where he does something resembling that. But that's not the primary way that he communicates his patience to us. More often in the Bible, what he does is that he tells us a story about his patience. He tells us a story, for instance, about a group of Israelites that he rescues out of slavery in Egypt. He leads them through the desert and then listens to them as they whine and complain to him for 40 straight years. And he bears with them every step of the way. And he provides for them every step of the way. He shows them grace upon grace upon grace. He pours out his patience and long-suffering with them. God tells us this story in order to communicate to us, here's what I'm like, I'm patient. This is who I am. 
God could have said, for instance, I am forgiving. I forgive people. That's a thing that I do. I'm God. That's what God could have done in the Bible. But more often, what God does is that he tells us stories about forgiveness. He tells us stories like the one of Hosea, a man in the Bible who marries a prostitute. And she steps out on him time and time again, cheats on him time and time again, throws herself at other men constantly, and Hosea pursues her time and time again. He forgives her time and time again. He extends grace to her time and time again. He works through the carnage that her sin has created in their life together, and he forgives her. God tells us that story to communicate to you and I, here's what I'm like, I forgive. I forgive people of their sin. My point is that God, for some reason, prefers to communicate who he is to us via a story, such that even the commands in the Bible are actually set inside of the story that is being told. The commands that God gives Israel in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and so on, those instructions, those rules, those commands are all set inside of the story that Israel is currently in. Jesus' commands in the Sermon on the Mount are an unveiling of this new chapter of the story of Israel and the story of all humanity at the end of the day. Even the New Testament letters to all these different churches are part of that unfolding story. They each teach us how to live and relate to one another and relate to the world around us as the church, as this new chapter in God's story for humanity. Now, the reason it matters to understand that the Bible is a story is because it means that to understand what the Bible is saying to us today, you need to have some degree of familiarity with the story it's telling. If you're going to understand what specific passages and verses in the Bible are intending to communicate to us, you need to have some idea of where you're at in the story of God. For instance, if you read the laws in Leviticus and Numbers without an eye to the part of the story that they're in, you're going to end up getting the wrong idea about their implications for us today. In order to understand what the Bible is saying, you need to understand that it's all wrapped up in a story about God and his people. Uh, In case this feels overwhelming to you, in case you're sitting here going, yeah, I don't understand the whole story of the Bible and that's part of the problem. Uh, This is actually part of what the Bible Project videos that we told you about last week, I'll tell you a little bit more about them at the end of the service today. But part of our reading plan is to watch these videos from this company called the Bible Project. And what they do in almost all of the videos is that at the very beginning, they kind of give you a picture of what part of the story you're in. They tell you what we just came from, what we just saw in the part of the story before and where we're headed next. They kind of give you this idea of where you are at in the story that the Bible is telling. Uh, I'll say that study Bibles and commentaries can also be immensely helpful in this. If you've read some of those before, if you're kind of familiar with how to use them well, those can be really, really helpful. But the point is that in order to understand what you're reading in the Bible as a whole, It helps to have some idea of the part of the biblical story that you're currently in. Otherwise, some of the stuff can get really confusing. Um, 
Author and pastor Tim Keller, I think, articulates this really well, as he does with pretty much anything. If you've ever read him, he tends to articulate lots of things pretty well. He says this, the reason for our confusion, and by that he means over the Bible, the reason for our confusion is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. Rather, it comprises a single story telling how the human race got into its present condition and how God through Jesus Christ has come and will come to put things right. All that leads us to the last part of our definition this morning, which is that the Bible tells a unified story that lastly leads us to Jesus. The Bible is a unified story that leads us to Jesus. Lastly, and by far the most importantly, is that this library of books that we have before us is meant to point us toward the person and work of Jesus. We can see this in passages like John 5, where Jesus is speaking to a group of religious leaders that have missed the point. He says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here, Jesus calls out this group of religious leaders because they are searching the scriptures backwards and forwards to find life in the scriptures themselves, but meanwhile, they are refusing to let the Bible do what it was meant to do, which is lead them to Jesus, which is to point forward to him and what he would accomplish through his life. Put another way, The scriptures are not an end in themselves. They're a means to an end. They're a means to an end. They're a way for people to encounter and know and discover who Jesus is and learn how to live in relationship with him. The purpose of the scriptures is to help you grow in that relationship. It's for you to discover how that relationship works and for you to thrive in that relationship to God himself. Jesus actually says something pretty similar in Matthew chapter 5. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So here, Jesus says again that the law and the prophets, what you and I would refer to as the Old Testament, that those writings are all, quote, fulfilled in him, in Jesus himself, They are all pointing and leading us to Jesus. The scriptures are presenting a problem that only Jesus can solve. They are describing an ideal that only Jesus can fully live up to. They are exposing sin in us that only Jesus is the answer to. Jesus and all the New Testament authors continually insist that the scriptures at their core all point us to Jesus. They're meant to lead us to him. Or as we often say around City Church, they point us to the gospel. How God, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, is reconciling all things in the world to himself. Every part of your Bible is meant to direct you towards Jesus in some way, form, or fashion. The whole Bible points us to him. Now, quick clarification on this one. I don't think that this means that every sentence or paragraph is an allegory for Jesus. 
Maybe that sounds like I'm kind of splitting hairs. I promise you I'm not. I think if you're not careful, if you believe that every line in the Bible is an allegory or a metaphor for Jesus, I think you'll end up doing some really goofy stuff. Just as an example, I listened to a sermon one time where a pastor was preaching on this passage from 2 Kings chapter 4. It's a rather obscure passage, but in, in the story... The prophet Elisha brings a little boy back from the dead in front of his parents. And there's this detail in the story where as this little boy comes back to life, it says that he sneezed seven times. You got to love the detail of the Bible, right? As he comes back to life, he sneezes seven times. And in this sermon, I heard this pastor stop and say, you know what a sneeze is? It's the way that the body rids irritants from his system. Do you know what Jesus came to do? He came to rid the irritant of sin from the human condition. And I was like, what? I, I had like whiplash from the theological trapeze work that he did through that sentence, right? So I, I don't think that that's what we're intended to do with the Bible. I don't think that's the way that the whole Bible points us to Jesus. I don't think you have to conjure stuff up most of the time to see how the various parts of the Bible point us to Jesus. It's generally a lot simpler than that. Uh, So in that story from 2 Kings, for example, it's probably just that this boy coming back from the dead points us to the day that Jesus would come back from the dead and ultimately the day that Jesus will bring all of us back from the dead in the new heavens and new earth. See, I didn't even have to bring the sneezes into it, right? So I don't think it means that we have to search out really obscure allegory and metaphor. A lot of times it's much, much simpler than that. But this does mean that read correctly, The scriptures should all lead us forward to who the scriptures are all about, and that's Jesus. And in an even deeper sense, this means that the reason we read the Bible, again, is not just to read the Bible. The reason we read the Bible is to get to know and come to love the person of Jesus. So if you read the Bible and it leads you to Jesus, you've almost, if you read the Bible and it doesn't lead you to Jesus, excuse me, you've almost definitely done something wrong. But if you read the Bible and it leads you to Jesus, you've most likely do, done something right. And the relationship between Jesus and the Bible should work both ways, right? It's a two-way street. A love for Jesus should spark in us a love for the scriptures. And a love for the scriptures should make us fall more and more in love with Jesus and who he is. The relationship works both ways. I think when people get off track is when they see one of these things as terminating on themselves. For some, the tendency is to say, I follow Jesus, but not really care anything about the scriptures that Jesus knew and loved to not really care at all about the scriptures that Jesus had internalized down to his core that drove almost everything that he said to people. Everything that he taught was based in the scriptures. And so for people to say, yeah, I love Jesus, but I don't really care to get to know the scriptures, I think is missing the point just a little. The point of of loving Jesus is that we might understand and know and study what what the scriptures say and the scriptures that Jesus had internalized down to his core. So a love for Jesus should translate into a love for the scriptures. And at the same time, 
I know other people that very much love the scriptures, that know the scriptures, that spend enormous amounts of time in the scriptures, that have it committed to memory, much of it, that know background and context and details of all sorts, but at the same time, their life is not looking more and more like Jesus. Somehow, they spend lots of time in here, but it is not translating into them becoming more like Jesus in any noticeable way. That's off because the goal of the scriptures should be to help us get to know Jesus. And as we know Jesus, he will make us more and more like him. Not immediately, not instantly, but over time, our character should be changing in that direction. So what we're after is both and. What we're after, those of us in the room who follow Jesus, is a love for Jesus that sparks in us a love for the scriptures that Jesus loved. And a love for the scriptures should lead us over and over again to Jesus himself because that's what they were designed to do. So I'll just close by asking two questions this morning. First, is your love for Jesus generating a love in you for the scriptures? Is your love for Jesus generating a love for the scriptures? When you say, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, when you say that is true of you, does that include a love for the scriptures? Does that include a desire to study and spend regular time in and understand and live out the things that the scriptures teach and show us about who God is? If not... I think it might be worth considering if your love for Jesus is more about loving the idea of Jesus than loving the Jesus himself. Because Jesus, what we see over and over again in the scriptures, loves the scriptures. He points people to the scriptures. He draws things out of the scriptures. So is your love for Jesus generating a love for the scriptures? And second... Second thing I want you to consider this morning before we're done is, is your love for the scriptures making you more like Jesus? Is your love for the scriptures making you more like Jesus? If you're here and you would put yourself in the category of someone who loves the Bible, someone who knows the Bible, someone who studies the Bible, someone who has committed your life to understanding the things in the Bible, is that love for the Bible making you more and more like the person that the Bible points to? Is it changing your character in that direction over time? Is it helping you get to know who Jesus is? And are you looking more and more like him as a result? Is it making you compassionate towards all the people that Jesus was compassionate towards? Or is it making you self-righteous towards them? I think it's a good question to ask at a relational level. Is it making you more and more like Jesus over time? Uh, just as a quick tip on this one, the, a good way to find out the answer to this one in honesty is to ask those closest to you that follow Jesus. Those that know you, those that spend regular time with you, other followers of Jesus in your life that are in this thing with you, if you were to ask them, hey, do you see my love for the scriptures making me more and more like Jesus? 
what would they say? If they were honest, what would they say? Is this pointing you in the direction of getting to know Jesus and therefore becoming more like him? That's the question we want to ask about our love for the scriptures. Because the hope is that our love for Jesus generates a love in us for the scriptures and that our love for the scriptures point us toward Jesus and make us more like the one that the scriptures are all about. So if I could just be straight with you guys, when it comes to those two questions, um, what I see in our church, I am sure that we have people in our church that love the scriptures and it's not really making them more and more like Jesus. I'm sure those people exist in our crowd. And if that's for you this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit shows you that, convicts you of that, and points you in a helpful direction to to fight for that in your life. But if I had to guess, just on our crowd, based on what I know about us, the time that I spend with you guys week in and week out, if I had to guess the, the tendency in the majority of us in the room at City Church might be that our love for Jesus is not translating into a love for the scriptures somehow. So if I could just invite you into something this week, and maybe even this morning as we pray here in just a second, can I just encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit, hey, why is that? Why is it that I would say I'm a follower of Jesus. I would say I love Jesus, but somehow that's not leading me to get to know the scriptures more and more in my everyday life. Somehow that's leading to everything else in my life crowding out the scriptures. If I could just encourage you this morning is is to ask that of the Holy Spirit, and here's what I know about the Holy Spirit. Uh, He doesn't want to heap guilt on you. If you hear condemnation, that is not the spirit speaking. But if you feel in that moment him prompting you to confess something to the community around you, to confess something to God himself about how your love for him is not translated into a love for the scriptures, can I just encourage you not to fight that this morning? Because I think what God wants to do in our midst is create a group of people that not just say they love God, say they love Jesus, but actually are formed deeply by the things in here. And to let the things in this book, in this library of books, right? See, I made the mistake right there. It's not a book, it's a library of books, right? To let the things in this library of books point us to Jesus so that we can become more like him. So I just invite you to consider those things this morning. Like I said, could be either of those. I'm not necessarily saying that's the application for every person in the room. It could be either. Just if I had to guess, that's the area where we need to let the Spirit work this morning. We need to ask him to to let our love for Jesus set into motion and spark a love for the scriptures that Jesus loved. So let me just pray for us to that end this morning. Father, I thank you for um, how utterly and completely unique you are. God, I thank you that um, you did not just drop a systematic theology book out of the sky 
I pray that you didn't just stop at giving us a list of instructions and rules about how we should live, but instead you choose to tell us a story about who you are, about who we are. God, even about the things that have gone wrong with the human condition since this thing started. But God, ultimately a story about how you are setting those things right through your son, Jesus. God, I, I want to confess just for me, um, you know, I have not always loved the scriptures. I've not always longed to spend time in them or been eager to spend time in them. Sometimes um, I look at it as an obligation. So God, I, I want to pray that you would change that in me. And God, maybe for those in the room that have been in a similar place or are in a similar place, that you would change that in them too. God, I want to ask that you would make us into people that love you and love the story that is all about you. And so God, we ask that um, you do the work this morning that only you know how to do. That we ask that your Holy Spirit would, would bring to mind, would, uh, would expose, would bring up things that we need to wrestle through. And God, that through that you would make us into this group of people in our city that love and read and understand and long for the scriptures. God, and through that, through that process that we would become more like you because they lead us to you. So God, we ask all these things for our good, for your glory in our lives and the city and the world around us.